The scripture today is Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Vicki. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I didn't introduce myself before. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. It's so good uh, to see you this morning. We continue in a series that we've been doing for quite a while now. Uh, it'll take us all the way until summer vacation, and then we'll actually pick back up for the fall as well. But we have come to Romans chapter 8, and if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, last week for Easter Sunday, we did those last few verses of Romans 8. The week before, we did uh, the first three or four verses. Uh, Tony Ellswick uh, preached to us. And so what we're doing now that we've covered the bookends is we want to cover everything in the middle. And so this morning, we come to this text beginning in verse 12. But really, I want to uh, push us back into uh, those first verses in Romans 8. It would be really helpful if you do have a Bible uh, and not just what we've printed for you in the worship folder this morning. So if you do have one, you might want to take it out or grab the one in the pew in front of you because I want you to look back at verse 3 and 4 to kind of set up what I think this, this uh, portion here in the middle that we're looking at this morning is really about. And you, you come in, in, in Romans 8, of course, Paul's been laboring to this point all throughout this, this letter he's writing to these Roman Christians. He's laboring to, to teach them the reality of grace, of their, the doctrine of justification by faith, that they are saved and righteous, not because they are righteous, but because they're counted righteous, because of the work of Christ on their behalf. And so he's laboring to really, to really get, them, uh, get their hearts subdued to the reality of grace. And you come to chapter 8, and of course he begins with the famous statement that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the heels of chapter 7, which is really... Def- describing the struggle against sin that every uh, mature and genuine Christian feels. And he wants us to know that even as we struggle, uh, God's love covers us in our struggles. And then he goes on in verses 2 and 3 and 4 there uh, to describe a little bit more about that. And you see in verse 3 he says, For what God has done, or excuse me, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son, being condemned for sin, Uh, In order that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so you read that verse, the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us, and and, and really there's a debate that happens at that point. Is he still laboring to talk about justification here, or has he moved into talking about sanctification? In other words... There are those who say that what Paul means by righteous requirement of the law being fulfilled there refers to the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. So just as Adam and just excuse me, just as Abraham was counted righteous, chapter four, verse six, we are also counted righteous because of Jesus's work. We are given his performance. And that's what Paul means here. Of course, all that's true. But it is not the end of the good news of the gospel. Because look at the text again. It doesn't, say, it, it doesn't say that righteousness might be fulfilled in us who trust in Christ, as it could say. It says instead, 
Righteousness might be fulfilled in us for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so I said last week that the gospel is more than the cross. It's more than the resurrection, too. The gospel is all of that, plus Jesus ascended to heaven, having sent the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit's job, we're told in the text, to turn us from slaves into people who obey from the heart. That, that really important phrase in chapter 6, verse 17, who obey from the heart. So Paul's goal in writing Romans, remember, is what he calls the obedience of faith. He wants us, he believes the gospel should not just, doesn't just lead to us being forgiven, the gospel leads to us actually possessing the kind of heart and the kind of tools that we need to really become people who can obey God. And that's better news, by the way. You with me? That's better news. And it's better news because we have to make sense of the categories of both the guilt and the ruin of sin in our lives. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, we, we talk about guilt. We are guilty before God. We've done things that we, that we shouldn't have done that he has told us not to do. We, uh, we, we don't do the things he tells us to do, and we're liable morally to him because of those things. But at the same time, there's also this category of the ruin of sin that we've got to make sense of too. And, if, and, and here's the way I would, I would put it to you. Uh, we experience breakdown. We not only experience guilt, there's breakdown because every sin is like pouring water into the gas tank of your car. And then trying to drive across town. What happens? Breakdown. You end up broken down on the side of the road. And many of us would probably say, yeah, that's exactly where I feel like I live my life. Broken down on the side of the road. We need more than just forgiveness. We need to be healed. You with me? And that's what the promise of righteousness is. Righteousness is that you stop putting water into the tank and you start putting gas. And of course, if you start putting gas, what happens? Now you're zooming. You're zooming from place to place. And that really is what God desires for us. And the way that he sets out to accomplish that is by sending the Spirit. This whole text is really about the Spirit, and I think you probably picked up on that theme this morning uh, through our readings and through the songs we've sung. And here's the question we have to answer, really. If you look there at verse 4 again, if Paul says the righteous, righteousness is, is, is fulfilled, in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Well, what does, what does that mean? What does that phrase, what does it mean to walk no longer according to the flesh, but instead to walk according to the Spirit? Well, that's what this text here in verses 12 through 17 is about. And I have uh, three things I'd like for us to talk about this morning together. It means all three of these things, and they're just the three points of the outline that I've given you, so look there if you want. Uh, but walking according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh means that you get a new power to be yourself. It means, secondly, that you get a new method to change yourself. And thirdly, it means that you get a new freedom to know yourself. A new power to be yourself, a new method to change yourself, a new freedom to know yourself. All of those things is what it means to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So let's, let's just take a look. Let's, let's get into this together, can we? So first... Uh, first, to walk according to the Spirit means a new power to, to be yourself. Now, this text, as I've said, is about the Holy Spirit, really beginning all the way there in verse 3. In the earlier chapters of Romans, of Romans the Apostle Paul talks about justification, but, and, and when he was doing that, he talks about the difference between law and grace, right? He said, justification doesn't come through law. 
It comes through grace. Here he begins to talk about sanctification, but notice the connection to the law again there. He says it's not through law, but this time it's through the Spirit. And so the power source for Christians isn't law. You with me? Verse 3, he says, the law is powerless, not because something's wrong with the law, but because something's wrong with us. The problem isn't with the law. It's that the law can't come inside and touch us in these broken places. The law is external. It, it, can, only, it can only motivate externally. It can really only deal with symptomatic things in our lives, and that's not enough. We need a new internal power source, and that's the Spirit. The law is fulfilled by those, verse 4, who walk according to the Spirit, who have this new internal engine for obedience so that they live now from a completely different place, no longer outwardly constrained out of fear of punishment or whatever the case might be, but now motivated and constrained by the power of the Spirit internally. And so the doctrine is really just this. If you belong to Jesus, you have the Spirit. Okay? If you belong to Jesus, verses 8 and 9, you have the Spirit. That means that the power, listen, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now breathing life into all your deadness. The person who was raised from the dead is now alive and he's living in you. <laughs> right? It's, it, what else do you say? And so one of the ways that you know you're a Christian is that there's a supernatural resurrection power in your life. And I want you to think about that for a minute. We just finished a communicants class. And so we have to make decisions about whether these children that have gone through this, this course that we put on have had a conversion experience or not. So parents, let me say, one of the ways that you do that is you look for supernatural power at work in the lives of your kids. Now, don't make, don't make, don't only think of the big things. If a brother is kind to his brother, that is supernatural. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Look for the ways of, oh, that was the spirit. Do you ever look at the lives of your kids and say, that was the spirit? That's what we should be looking for, right? Because it goes beyond having all the right answers about what you're supposed to believe, being a, becoming a Christian, conversion isn't just that. It's something way more than that. And so in the coming weeks, these kids that we've been training are going to stand up here. And when you see them up here and they take vows of membership, I hope you'll look and you'll say, that's a miracle. Because it is. One of the ways you know that you're a Christian is there's resurrection power in your life. And then, and then the second implication, I think, is what the text tells us is that the spirit in you is better than the Jesus beside you. Jesus said, it's for your good that I go away. Can you imagine, as John said, being one of his guys and saying, I am going to have to object to that. And he says, no, it's, it's better for you that I go away because if I go away, I will no longer be walking beside you. I will be living in you. And that's way better. So think about the disciples for a minute. At the end of the Gospels, you know, you have Peter denying Jesus because he's scared to death of the, of the religious leaders and the other disciples running and hiding and just scattering to the winds. And then it's not too much longer. You come to Acts 2, and Peter is standing up in front of everybody, and he's boldly preaching. And the disciples are enduring physical harm and imprisonment and still joyfully proclaiming the gospel. And you think, what's the difference? What happened to these guys? And, of course, what is the difference? The Spirit. At Pentecost, the Spirit came down 
and the spirit in them was better than the, it made, they were better because of the spirit in them than they were because Jesus beside them. They had a new joy, a new power, and if you belong to Jesus, you do too. And so look at uh, Paul's exhortation in verse 12 then. He says, so, so then, and of course, it's a transition, so, so what? And he's talking about verses 9 through 11, which are just laboring to show us that if you belong to Jesus, then you have the Spirit. And if you have the Spirit, then he goes on to say, brothers, we are, not de- we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. The implication is that we are debtors rather to the Spirit who lives in us. Martin Lloyd-Jones picks up on something really important here. He says, Paul's starting to motivate his people towards obedience, and notice that he does not appeal to the will. He's, the power doesn't come from the will. The power comes from knowing who you are, remembering who you are. You're no longer a debtor to the flesh, he says, if you have the Spirit. You don't have to do what the flesh says. You're under new management. There's a line in a song that we're going to sing in just a bit, I think. Jesus, I, my cross have taken. It's kind of an anthem for our church. Uh, and I, I love the song, but do you remember the line in the song that says, think what spirit dwells within thee? You see, the way you fight your fear, your worry, is to remember what's true of you. You have the spirit. You have the Father's smile. You have the victory of Jesus. If your faith is in him, if you belong to him, you are no longer dead in sin. You are dead to sin. And so chapter 6, verse 11, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You don't fight sin by doing, according to Paul. You fight sin by counting, by remembering the truth and putting it to use to achieve a specific goal. And the the word that keeps coming up in Romans, this, this word count, is the word that literally gives us the word logistics. And logistics in business is... Just that, it refers to acquiring and and moving materials and and storing them so that you have them at hand, and when you need them, you can get them where they need to go. And that's the idea. There's there's truth that you need need to do that with the truth. There's truth that is latent in you, and you've got to take inventory of it and put it to use and bring it up to the level level of consciousness because that's where the power for obedience comes from. So kids, there's not many of you here, but teenagers, I guess, okay? Maybe you're old enough to have, or probably recycled uh, the movie The Lion King. So I love, I really love the movie The Lion King. Uh, And I'm one, you know, if you don't know me well, I'm one that is prone to go to, you know, movies and shows and ball my eyes out at things. And so I'm kind of a sissy when it comes to that stuff. And one of those moments was not in the movie, but actually in watching the show. But then after watching the show, realizing it was in the movie, it just didn't grip me in the movie the way that it did. But if you remember Simba the Lion... Uh, who has uh, been kind of run off. He's the rightful king. He's been run off, and he's just decided to live his life in ease. Akuna Matata means no worries. I'm just going to kick back and take it easy. And while he's doing that, his kingdom is just falling into disrepair. It's just there's destruction everywhere, and Rafiki uh, comes to find him, and he says, you need to go back. And he says, no, I can't. I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm too afraid. I like my life here. And, and then if you remember, he takes him out into uh, kind of the wilderness there, and his father appears to him in a dream, and he has this, this epiphany, this moment, and his father speaks to him. He sees his father's silhouette in the cloud, and, and James Earl Jones, right? Simba, I can't even do it. Like, whatever, right? His father comes to him in the cloud, and here's, do you remember what he said? He says, you have forgotten who you are. You are more than you've become. Remember who you are. And it's the point of transformation. I mean, it completely sets him on a different trajectory of his life. And Paul's saying the same thing to us. Think 
what spirit dwells within you. Secondly, not only is there a uh, new power to be yourself that comes with the spirit, but secondly, you get a new method to change yourself. And so let's go on to verse 13 now, and you'll see there Paul says, uh, we're not a debtor to the flesh any longer, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit, if you are in underlining your Bible, you should underline those three words right there. By the spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, the great Puritan, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so the very first thing you have to ask is, do you hate sin? Do you hate uh, the wickedness of your own heart enough to go to war with it? Because that's what it's going to take. You have to put it to death. The Greek word here is the word that gives us the word mortification. We don't use that word a whole lot. In our circles, we're really great at confessing sin, but do you realize confession of sin is not enough, right? It's not, it's not enough for you to say, you know, yeah, yeah, I do that, yeah, yeah, and have no expectation of change. Our catechisms and our confession says that we have to move beyond confession of sin to actually hating sin to actually forsaking sin because that's what repentance is. We want to be people who go beyond just a mere confession of our sin, as great as that is, to people who are committed to forsaking Sin. Owen defines sin as, here's his words, as a strong, deeply rooted, habitual inclination towards some particular wrongdoing. Mortification, then, this word here is the weakening of the habitual inclination so that it loses its power. And you do that negatively by weakening the provision for sin in your life. We looked at this in chapter 6, but it's worth bringing up again. What, what Paul taught us there is that we may not even be aware of it, but listen, we plan for and make arrangements beforehand for our, for our pet sins. And most of the time, again, we don't even realize it. And so he says you have to make no provision for the flesh, no provision for sin. So if you really struggle with pornography, you need to get the filters on all your devices. If you have a problem with envy, you need to stay off of social media. You need to make provision, right? And then positively, you have to weaken sinful desire by developing new habits that create new desires that eventually overpower the old. For example, if you like sugary food that's bad for you and, and you don't like food that's actually good and healthy for you, what you have to do, there's only one way out of that rut. You have to eat enough of the good food so that eventually you use, lose your taste for the sugary stuff. At least that's what I'm told, right? <laughs> I'm living by faith on that one still. One day, maybe. But again, again, it's not willpower. It's not willpower alone because, listen, your will is part of the problem. It says, look, verse 13 again, if by the Spirit you put to death, you put sin to death. And so the uniqueness of the Spirit's ministry, again, is, is that because the Spirit lives internally in us, the uniqueness of his ministry is its depth, its ability to go beneath behavior to the heart, to the motivational core of a person's life. And that's the only way you go to war against sin. You have to go to the root. If you don't pull it out, you know this, you live in Florida, right? If you don't pull it out at the root, what happens? It grows right back. You have to understand the why. You have to dig until you get to the why behind the behavior you're trying to confront. And the text actually gives us a clue, if you look carefully with me, at kind of universally what the why is when down in verse 15 Paul reminds us as he's talking about the transformation the spirit brings he reminds us that in the spirit coming we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear do you see that verse 15 
So the gospel brings us out of fear, which of course means that the main engine of sin in our lives is fear. We sin because we're afraid. I mean, the most oft-repeated command in the Bible is, fear not. And when God addresses us like that, he's going right to the root of our struggle to obey him. Now, Paul textures this with the image, look there, of orphans and ultimately adoption. And it's really helpful to me. Uh, And what he means is that there is a strength-sapping mindset that says, I'm all alone. If it's going to be, it's up to me. I can't rely on anybody else but me because my experience is uh, there's no one else. That's the way the orphan lives, unloved. You don't believe that God's a loving father and is orchestrating your life towards good and beautiful things. I mean, if there is a God, and, and I seriously doubt it, he is indifferent or harsh or capricious. I mean, that's what most people, and if we were honest, that's what most of us at our core really do believe about God. And it is the power of what Paul calls in verse 12, the flesh, which is just a technical term for a self-salvation project. So when Paul says put to death, the, put, the putting to death that he's describing here is the killing of the orphan mentality by living into the reality of your sonship. By choosing to live not as if you're unloved, not as Richard Dawkins says, as if the world, at the, you know, the, kind of behind the curtain of the world is just pitiless indifference. But to live knowing that your love, that behind the curtain of the world that we can't see is a loving father who's orchestrating and doing all of the things that Paul goes on to say. Remember at the end of chapter 8? All those amazing things? That that truly is what God is like. And so the method is recognizing and changing uh, and changing what you put your mind on. That's what Paul's ultimately pointing us to. So look back at verse 5 and 6. If you have a Bible, again, I told you it would be helpful for you to see that because 7, 12 through 17 really is kind of in the middle of a lot of stuff that's important. But in verse 5, Paul says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit. Now, mind here doesn't just refer to what you're thinking. Paul's not saying replace bad thinking with good thinking. It's much, much more than that. Mind refers to thinking, but also feeling, and even to what Jamie Smith calls intending. You mind what preoccupies you, what engrosses you the most, what you love. And so you got to ask questions. What are your dreams? What captures your imagination? Where does your mind go? Where does your mind go in moments of solitude? Whatever the answer is, that is your way of being your own Savior and Lord. That is where your flesh is expressing itself. So, I'm going to pick on the men and the women for just a minute in in very um, um, stereotypical ways, probably, but that's okay. We'll just so if if um, so, men, if on the weekend you you uh, you find that your attention keeps pulling back into the office, you just can't get away. The emails are coming, or whatever it might be. You then then you know what what you need to realize about that is it means that that work work success is your fleshly self salvation project, and you need to kill it by minding the spirit, by making decisions for your spiritual flourishing, even if they get in the way of your business success, turning off your phone, whatever, it's got, whatever, whatever it is, that's what mortification looks like. But ladies, if you're a mom and you spend all of your time thinking and worrying about your kids and the only books you ever read are parenting books, then being a good mom is your self-salvation project. And you need to... You need to um, you need to recognize that for what it is. It might look like you're just really trying to love your kids well, but in truth, it's self-love. It's flesh. It's the fear that 
The success or the failure of your children rests on your shoulders. Can I tell you? It doesn't. Because behind the curtain is a loving father who loves them way more than you do. But it's an orphan mentality, you see? And you have to kill it by minding the spirit, by abiding in your sonship. And so, lastly then, we need to finish up. Then, then what does it mean for us to kind of move into the reality of our sonship? What do we mean by that? And, and you see it, and I want to spend uh, the rest of our time uh, just here in these, last, in these last verses. So thirdly, we not only get a new power to change ourselves, in an, I mean, excuse me, a new power to be ourselves and a new method to change ourselves, but we ultimately get a new freedom uh, to know ourselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you, if you just step back for a minute and look at the big picture of Romans 8, let's zoom out for just a second, okay? And in chapter 7, Paul taught that in every one of us, even the best of us, even in the St. Paul's, there is a dark mass of self-absorption and self-centeredness, and it makes us capable of terrible sin and evil. And then immediately after all of that, verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Simultaneously. In other words, we're doing wrong all the time, but with God, nothing we've ever done or will do can bring us into condemnation. We're sinners and we're justified at the same time. We're stubborn and rebellious and, listen, we're stubborn and rebellious and also at the same time the object of God's perpetual delight and love. There's a place in Luke, Luke's gospel where Jesus offhandedly, he uh, turns to his disciples and he says, if, let's think about this. If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, and then he goes on. He's talking to the people that he loves. He delights in them. He's unconditionally committed to them. He's going to die for them. And so he says, I mean, and this is what he would need to say to you too. Can you imagine hearing this from the one who made you? I love you. I'm unconditionally committed to you. I feel nothing but perpetual delight for you, but you know you're evil. That didn't quite get the reaction I expected it to. Because it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to imagine that. I mean, there's a liberal mindset that calls anything or that never calls anything or anyone evil. And there's a conservative mindset, which, which does use the terms sinful and evil, but it always is in reference to those people whose identity, and then, and then the conservatives, are, their identity is based on the idea that I'm not one of them. But the gospel is different. If you're in Christ, you are simultaneously evil and absolutely loved. <laughs> That's the good news of the gospel, right? Cheer up, you're far worse than you, thought, than you ever thought yourself to be. And what I want you to see is it gives you a freedom. It gives you a freedom with other people. It gives you the freedom to stop dividing the world into good people and bad people and to instead know that the dividing line between good and evil runs through the center of every human heart. If you're a Christian, you know that the only difference between you and the biggest sinner in the world is that the seeds of sin didn't get watered in your life as they did in theirs. But it gives you freedom with yourself, too, to be honest and not hide, to not deflect or blame shift, to not despair over your weakness and failure, to not boast or become self-confident in your strength, to admit and talk about your sin without melting down emotionally, which is the epitome of emotional and spiritual health. It's absolutely crucial. Now, uh, Tim Keller uh, when he was a pastor in Virginia, he, he, I listened to a talk that he did on this text. And he, he, there was a tragedy in his area that he spoke of. A family lost three children in a car accident. They all drowned when the family car went into a lake and they were, the kids were strapped into their seatbelts. 
And, uh, and you can imagine the horror of the parents. And at the funeral, the husband and the wife testified to their faith in God. They seemed so strong. And everyone around the area talked about what an amazing faith these people had. And they picked themselves up, right? They, they, uh, they moved on with their life. They had more kids. They were pillars in the church. The husband was an officer in the church and so forth. And then uh, Tim went on to tell the story. He said 20 years later, after he and his wife had moved away to New York, they heard about this man, uh, that at some point, as the story went, that he had become strongly sexually attracted to a woman in the church. And he was in agony about it. He, he experienced incredible guilt. I mean, he... Right, a leader in the church. How could he feel this way? How could he? How could he want this? And he, so he went through extensive counseling. Uh, and and he never acted on the temptation, but he could never shake it. And he he couldn't deal with the guilt. He was just so distraught over the the darkness of his own heart. He came up against that ultimately he killed himself. And I was just so struck by the story. Here's a man who at the thought of what a great Christian he was could handle the worst suffering in the world, the worst the world can hand him, but he couldn't handle, couldn't emotionally handle the idea that he was a sinner. To be able to say, I'm capable of terrible things, but I'm unconditionally loved. (laughs) That keeps you from pride and fear, which is the root of all sin. It pulls sin out at the root. So the gospel gives you the freedom to be honest about who you really are, and the kind of change that you're in need of. And the way to emotional and spiritual health is not to replace low self-esteem. Be careful. Don't just replace low self-esteem with with positive self-esteem. It's when you get to the place where you can be honest about your sin because you know God can handle it. You know that no matter what you find to be true in here, it's no match for his strength and grace. Why? What is it about the gospel that makes that true? Well, you have to go back again to verse 3. And and there in verse 3, you'll see that we're told that God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And it's a technical term for sin offering. So all the scholars agree about this. They say the gospel is not this vague sense that God is love, that God loves you. Love wins, right? Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Whatever cheesy bumper sticker thing you can think to say. It's not enough. It's not enough to just believe God loves you in general. You need the Holy Spirit to show you how Jesus Christ was condemned in your place, becoming sin for you to put away your sin, because that is the radioactive isotope that kills the malignant cells of sin. What Jesus did in dying for you on the cross, illuminated by the Holy Spirit. That is the event that displays the love of God. But the Bible says that we still, despite all of the evidence, we're still hesitant to believe it. We're still hesitant to believe that it could be true. And so it's the Holy Spirit's job. This is what this passage teaches us. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince us. And this is the real heart of the passage, verses 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom... We cry, Abba, Father. So the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In other words, the way you get over fear and begin to live loved is to begin to experience what you already know. Do you hear what you begin to experience what you already know? And that's the Holy Spirit's job, to cause you to experience subjectively what you already know objectively. You might say, I, I know God loves me. I mean, you might be able to articulate the doctrines of justification and adoption, but if you're still afraid, then you know, but you don't know. You know in theory, but it isn't real. And Romans 8, 15 describes the work of the Spirit in making the fatherly love of God real to you so that you feel it 
to the degree that you cry out. You see that? You cry out, Abba. Russell Moore told a story about an adoption. I'm just going to close with this. The adoption of, of two of his, uh, these two children that they were trying to adopt from a Russian orphanage. And he said the creepiest sound that he's ever heard was nothing at all. Going into an orphanage in Russia to meet the one-year-old twins that they were planning to adopt and the dozens of babies literally lining the walls there. And as they walked through the room, it just being completely silent. I mean, listen, walk in, go over there right now. Walk into that building over there. One thing I can promise you, it's not quiet. But this orphanage was because, of course, infants learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to their calls for food or comfort or love. And so Russell Moore and his wife would come every day and be with their sons-to-be, and, and they would uh, hold them, and they would read stories to them, and they would spend time with them, and then they'd put them back in their cribs, and they'd say goodbye, and the babies never squealed. They never cried when they left. And then the day finally came for them to say one last goodbye before they had to come back to the States to complete the process and go back weeks later to get them. And they went to see the boys and they hugged and they kissed them as they had day after day for the past days and weeks. They put them in their crib and they turned to leave. And as they were walking towards the door, they heard a scream. And one of the boys began to cry and to reach out through the slats of his crib. And here's what he said. He said, it seemed he knew, maybe for the first time that he would be heard. On some primal level, he knew that he had a mother and a father now. And I was struck, maybe for the first time, by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament. It was the moment in his recognizing that he would be heard, that he went from being an orphan to being a son. See, there's a difference between knowing in theory and crying out from your heart, Abba, Father, and it's the Spirit's job to make God's love for you so real that it wakes up your cold, quiet places. Anybody else beside me have some cold, quiet places? The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, verse 16. There's a part of us that really does believe that God loves us. It might be a tiny little flame, but it's there, and it's the Spirit's job to say to our hearts in our places of weakness and brokenness and pain, it's true, you're right, it's true, he really does love you, it's true, until all of our fear and doubt and skepticism are no more, and that is something that is immediate and supernatural. You don't get it by reading the Bible or doing theology. It's why the first step in our community Bible reading uh, is to pray for illumination. Do you know that part? When you're reading the scriptures, you're supposed to stop and pray. Why do you pray be before you read? Because unless the Spirit comes when you read, the reading will just fall upon your hard heart. It's why we meet before this service every Sunday to pray, because we know unless the Spirit comes, any words I say will fall upon hard hearts. We need the Spirit to take the scriptures and supernaturally drive them home, be like a hammer that shatters the hard hearts in our chests pieces. That's what we need. Not to know with our heads, but to feel it in our hearts because there's no fear in knowing that your love like that it kills sin at the root. So here's my question. Do you know his love like that? Ask the Spirit to go to work on you. Get in the way of his working. That's how you go to war against sin. Put your sails up. Wait for the wind to blow. And, and I, just, I just feel, you know, I, I just feel the end of myself in that. So all I know is to say, oh, I mean, to really pray, Spirit, come and bear witness in us to the Father's perpetual delight and love for us until we believe it and begin to cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, please, Holy Spirit, do that.
Now, if you're paying attention to the text, you'll see one last thing. Why this last line? That we are children, Paul says. We are heirs. <laughs> and then he ruins it all, doesn't he, by saying, provided we suffer with him. Why would he do that? What a cliffhanger. Come back next week. But here's what he means. We go out from this place into a world that is hostile to living loved. And you have to fight. And you have to go to war. But as you do, know you're not alone. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins, and we thank you. We thank you for the ministry of the Spirit. And for most of us, we're, we're very aware of the cold, hard places in us, the quiet places where we've given up. We've give, so given in to cynicism and despair that we've stopped crying out to you. We've allowed our unbelief to speak lies to our hearts, and we so desperately need the Spirit. And so send him now to warm us and to put a song on our lips and to cause us to erupt in praise and thanksgiving because it really is true. Holy Spirit, come testify with our spirits that we are the children of God, that we, are, that we really are loved so that we can live loved and in living love that we can put to death sin so that our lives will be full of beautiful fruit that will glorify you. And we pray all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That is the anthem of everyone who follows after the crucified one. Uh, so, think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee, child of heaven. Canst thou repine? The answer, of course, is no. And so go, knowing all of that. Receive the words of this benediction then. Whatever, whatever suffering and hard thing God sends you into, uh, the hope of resurrection lingers over you because you're loved. You're not an orphan, you're not alone, you're a child of the Most High, most beloved of his family. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.